Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes. I'm joined by Terry Fakes for this special Holy Week episode of the So We Speak podcast. I just, for a little bit of air traffic control here, we won't have a podcast on Friday of this week, not just because it's Good Friday, but because we don't have a Wednesday night class this week. So if you're looking for the Revelation questions, those will be the following week. We will not have a podcast this week. But what I would encourage you to do this week is to check. We've got stuff coming out all week long on SoWeSpeak.com. We've got some blog posts. We have ways to pray on social media. We have uh, just a lot of good resources, reading plans and things that you can dive into for this week. You know, Cole, I noticed today in the weekly speak that uh, showed up in my uh, email box, you talked about a devotional, not a devotional, but uh, a podcast that walks you through the week. Mm-hmm. What was the name of that? What was the name of that again? So that's actually, it's kind of funny because this is a podcast that's put together by a guy and I know from working at another church and their ministry is called Spoken Gospel, which is a uh ministry that puts reading plans and things on on you version and this is uh easter explained and it will walk you through easter every explained. day of the week and talk about what was jesus doing and they'll align the readings for you on that reading plan uh based on what day. was going on that day and it's, it's a very cool concept of doing that and it just it allows you to just walk through um, the Easter week and maybe a new light. We focus on the big parts of Easter, Easter Sunday, Palm Sunday. Uh, some people celebrate Good Friday, even fewer Monday, Thursday. But have you ever thought about right. Holy Monday, for example, and what Jesus was doing right. when he was turning over the tables in the temple? And so I just pulled up this plan, uh, again, Easter explained. And uh, on day two, for example, you get four readings. You get the the story of Jesus overturning the temple's uh, the tables in the temple in Mark 11, but you also get the prophecies that are talking about that from Psalm 69, Isaiah 56, oh, excellent. Jeremiah yeah. chapter 7. So it's, a, it's a great way to um, get a fresh look and some time in the Word during the Easter week. Of course, we're recording this on Monday. You're listening to this on Wednesday, so you're not that far behind. Just go ahead and sign up on the Uversion app or go to our website and look at what we've got out yeah. there and catch up. This is a week to add some extra time in your schedule, spend time with God, spend time in prayer, spend time in the word to appreciate. uh, Again, the resurrection is true every day, but to appreciate yet again, the significance Mm -hmm. of Jesus' death and resurrection for us. Agreed. Uh, A lot of of things going on this week and wherever your local church is, please get involved. But uh, I love that So We Speak will be putting things out all week to to get our minds focused on the, the crucial, uh, what I would call the centerpiece of history and certainly the crux of our faith, the resurrection mm-hmm. of Christ. Now, what do you guys have going on for Holy Week? Crossings Church is doing a Good Friday experience. It's something we trialed last year, but it basically you go into the sanctuary and the sanctuary has been completely remodeled, so to speak, into 12 stations of the cross and you walk through takes about 45 minutes you can pray you can meditate and each one of them is a reminder of something that jesus did in that last week and last year we had a lot of lines so we're doing it wednesday thursday and friday we do the communion story uh the kind of the story of 
of uh, Maundy Thursday, the Last Supper on Thursday at noon and six. And then we have services on Saturday evening and Sunday morning. I noticed that Carlton Landing had a really great first uh, kid parade on Palm Sunday with the palm fronds. Yes, we did. It's an annual tradition here, as in many churches. We love that. The kids love it. Uh, it was really good yesterday. Uh, we're also doing Monday Thursday. It will be uh, a total ripoff of your Monday Thursday lesson for anybody that's heard both of them. There will be some stunning similarities. Uh, but we love that. It's a kind of a family service. We do that one late in the evening to simulate yeah. the Last Supper. We put people at tables instead of in rows of chairs. We do Great communion idea. prolonged with more than just your little happy meal of bread and uh, juice. Uh, and then we do a Good Friday service that's more of a hymns and readings with responses, trying to weave in the yeah. uh, prophecies that tie into Jesus' crucifixion and death, tying the whole biblical story together. It's really a unique service. I've never seen anyone do one quite like what we're trying to do, but it's it's going to be a great experience. And then we'll do Easter Sunday. So we've awesome. both got busy weeks. There's a lot to choose from. We'll be airing your communion message on Monday Thursday. Uh, it'll be one of the previous years, obviously, because we'll put it out uh, that morning. Mm -hmm. But for anybody who wants to hear that, who can't make it to crossings or hasn't heard it before, we'll put that out on the podcast, which will be tomorrow. So in this podcast, we wanted to talk about the resurrection and not just the spiritual meaning of the resurrection, as in uh, what, what you preach about the resurrection. We wanted to talk about the question, can we believe in the resurrection? What is the evidence for the resurrection? There's been some great material on this. A lot of what we're going to do today is summarize different approaches mm -hmm. to the resurrection. And there have been a lot of helpful resources for both of us in terms of believing the resurrection. Uh, but I wanted to just start off with a story. I was on this panel and uh, Ben Williams, who many of our listeners know, he's he and I are doing a series right now on Stephen Meyer. Part two of that will come out next week at this time. Uh, and he's a great writer, pastor. We're on this panel on science and faith at a church in Oklahoma City. And we're taking questions from the audience. And somebody stands up, and I'm trying to remember what the context was. But I, their question, I definitely remember. Their question was, is there anything in the Bible that you can prove to be true? Which sounds like kind of a dumb question. But when yeah. you start to think about it for a minute, it's uh -huh. a pretty interesting question. Because it's not just, is there anything in the Bible that you can prove to be true? Is there anything in any book that you can right. prove to be true? Exactly. The question gets at the fact that we actually don't prove very many of our beliefs. We take most of our beliefs on the authority of trustworthy witnesses. That's actually how we know most of what we know. And then sometimes exactly. we we reason from one thing to another. But, you know, is there anything in most of the books that we've read that you can prove to be true? It was, it was an interesting question. And of course, everybody's kind of sitting for a second. And Ben Williams, without hesitating, says, yeah, the resurrection. And I thought that was such a good answer because proving historical facts is a very interesting epistemological right. question. Can you prove a historical fact? 
But if there's any historical fact that we can prove, other than ones that we have we ourselves have experienced, but let's say outside the lived experience of a person, can you prove a historical fact? What I want to argue in this podcast today, and what I think Ben was getting at with that answer is, there may not be a single other event that we can be as sure of uh, that we haven't experienced ourselves as the resurrection. And uh, that might sound a little provocative. I hope it does, because I really want you to see just how much information God has given us to trust the historical reality of the resurrection. To put things on that foot, I just want to remark that in the New Testament, what you'll see is there's not a lot of effort outside of the gospel accounts to prove the resurrection. What happens in the New Testament, and I, I think we need to return to this some in our apologetics, they don't try to prove the resurrection. So they don't reason up to the resurrection as much as they reason from the resurrection. Well said. They take That's that right. as a given. Now, for them, it was because they had experienced it, right? So they're, they're reporting on things that they had experienced. And for us, that constitutes proof and insight into things we haven't experienced. But for those in the first century, they took the resurrection for granted. They said, so assume that someone has now risen from the dead. Now what? We yes. spend a lot of our time thinking, so could a, could could we make the case that a person rose from the dead? Right. It will help you to read the New Testament to understand that they are saying, given the resurrection, now what can we argue? Mm-hmm. And you'll see that all over the place in Paul's letters. You'll see that in Hebrews. You'll see that in First Peter. You'll see that in, Res- in the book of Revelation. The resurrection is assumed. Things have fundamentally changed in the universe because a person has risen from the dead. What are the implications of that? That's how the New Testament is structured. So we're going to go back a little ways and actually ask a previous question, but then I want you to know you'll start to see that all the time if you keep this in mind when you read the New Testament of we're reasoning from this conclusion that Jesus has risen from the dead. That's why Easter is such a high point. It's such a remarkable and amazing thing to say. Jesus has risen from the dead, and it is the bedrock of our faith. Well, you make a really good point, because uh, if you look at the earliest Christians of which we have written records, so for example, a Christian named Clement, who was in Rome, they wrote a letter to the church in Corinth in 95 AD. So this is, John's probably still alive, and so it's very, very early. And they don't spend any time saying, hey, we want to tell you why you should believe in the resurrection. He also just says, Christ was raised from the dead. Therefore, Mm -hmm. uh, Polycarp in 110 AD, writing to the church in Philippi, same thing. Christ, God raised Christ from the dead. Therefore, so I think you make a really good point. It has been the history of the church, not so much to do, quote, apologetics as to uh, talk about the reality of the resurrection and what then does that mean for us? So I think that's a very good point. Well, I wanted to break down this discussion into a few lines of argument because there are different ways to approach the historicity of the resurrection and different ways to argue about this. And so I think the first thing we want to talk about is the sources. So with any historical event, and and the Bible is a total unicorn in the history of reporting historical events in terms of how many manuscripts we have, how close the manuscripts are to the originals, how close the originals are to the events that they're reporting on. 
the quality of the eyewitness testimony, the number of different accounts that we have. I mean, there is a lot of unique factor. There are many unique factors in assessing the Bible's claims about the resurrection. But let's just start there. Let's start with the sources and say, what do they tell us about the resurrection? Yeah, we have a remarkable variety of accounts that are independent accounts. I mean, no one's going to argue that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the book of Acts, uh, for example, just in the New Testament, that they somehow, I don't know, colluded with one another, you know, to get the account exactly right, because they emphasize different pieces of the account. But the key is there are, there are all those different, there are multiple different sources who unwaveringly talk about the resurrection and have some of the same key details, a number of which are not really uh, beneficial to their cause. For example, the women finding the open tomb is not something that if you were making this up, or even if you just wanted to pretty it up, you would leave that part out. And right. so you get what appears to be very honest accounts, and you get a variety of accounts. Yeah, if you just think about how many other historical events, especially in antiquity, are attested, we we have one, sometimes two sources of things that we just take for granted, for granted. as historical Absolutely. events. That you would believe and say that's an established fact. Exactly. Um, whether it's things like the Trojan War, whether it's the reign of certain people, certain events that happened in ancient Greece, Rome, Persia, we just don't have very much comparative evidence. But here in the Bible, you have not just the four Gospels, which all talk about the resurrection, Paul's letters, which are even earlier than the Gospels, Paul right. talking about other people that he's talked with about the resurrection, which we'll get into in a little bit. The author mm -hmm. of the Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, which the early church fathers often thought was Paul, but uh, you can listen to our intro to Hebrews podcast mm -hmm. to know that maybe this was another writer. First uh, Peter, again, is uh, another ancient source about the resurrection. So you have all in all maybe seven independent sources that are all talking about the resurrection. And that is very substantial, historically speaking. Uh, so given that they are saying that, and that's not to, that's not to mention even the extra biblical sources, like you said, you get very early attestations of the resurrection outside of the Bible. But the method that I'd like to go through in terms of talking about the historicity and the proof of the resurrection is just to go by the events themselves and say, what evidence do we have that this was true? And you, if you're going to do this, you need to start actually right before the resurrection, because this will short circuit some of the some of the objections to the resurrection. The first historical event that we can be 100 percent confident happened is that Jesus died. In fact, we we don't just know that he did die. We know that he was crucified on a Roman cross outside of Jerusalem in the early to mid first century. It's interesting. I just picked up Tom Holland's book called Dominion, and I've read several of his books, but I've never read Dominion. It's about the transformation of the world through Christianity. And Tom Holland is not a believer. He's a, he's friendly to belief now, but he didn't start that way. And mm -hmm. in the opening chapter of the book, one of the things he talks about is 
the historical perspective, not among believers, just the historical perspective in general on Jesus' life and death. In fact, he quotes one non-believing scholar who obviously doesn't want to believe in the resurrection, but he says that Jesus died on a Roman cross is an incontrovertible fact. It's actually the only incontrovertible fact we have about his life. Now, like I said, I think he's short-selling that yeah. a little bit, but, but this right is that. not a controversial point. No. Uh, Jesus lived, he died, he was crucified. This is one of the best attested historical facts uh, in history. And the other thing is, no one would make up a religious figure who said what Jesus said, being crucified. It's similar to the fact that the women discovered the tomb. You would not, unless it had happened, you would not report that women were the ones that that discovered the tomb because their word didn't carry as much weight in that culture. So if you were trying to, to beef up your story, you wouldn't have it be the group of women. Well, in the same way, there was nothing more shameful than being crucified. There's not. There was nothing that signaled ultimate defeat and humiliation like being crucified, to the point that you even have Bart Ehrman, who is no right. friend of the faith and <laughs> has done a lot to tear down people's faith, saying the cross is something that you never, ever would have said about somebody unless it was true. You would, right. it's, it's impossible that they made this up because you would never make up something that scandalous for someone you claim to admire. It would just be impossible in the imagination of that time to do that. So if you start there, the cross itself, the death of Jesus is a fact. The death of Jesus is something we can be certain of. Yes. The, as you said, I was reading in Suetonius, first century Roman historian the other day, the lives of the 12 Caesars, and was reading about Nero. And also in Tacitus, who has some things to say about Nero, and then, of course, Josephus. But all of them refer to the established fact that this Jesus, they call him Christ, because the Christians had begun to be called Christians, was uh, a Jew who was crucified by Pontius Pilate during his governorship. I mean, it was an established fact even amongst the Romans. Now, what is the significance of that? They would disagree, but as far as the actual historical event, it's better attested than many, many. I mean, than most historical characters, right? Um, and the other thing is, there are some people who think maybe Jesus didn't die. There's something called the swoon theory, where Jesus didn't die, and then in the cool, dark cave, he was revived, or he was kind of in a shallow coma for a while. That's another thing that, if you just look historically, is really pressing belief because. The Romans were professional executioners. Not only did they invent crucifixion as the most brutal and shameful way to die, they did it all the time. <laughs> they did it all the time to people. They knew exactly what it took to keep somebody alive, and they knew exactly what it took to kill somebody. And they knew for sure those centurions, we get reports in the Gospels that the centurions come and check Jesus and the two criminals that are on either side and they realize that Jesus is dead, and that's when they pierce his side. So to, to say, well, he was crucified, but maybe he didn't actually die, is mm. another thing that is just beyond belief. These these people, uh, these centurions and the Romans were masters of execution. They knew when somebody was dead. So the fact that Jesus was crucified on a cross, died, and then was laid in the tomb are 
uh, hard to argue against. And, and now here's where we get to the pivotal point. The, the fact that I want to assert next is not just Jesus is risen from the dead or obviously going there. The, the thing to assert next is the tomb was empty. So on Sunday morning, there right. was an empty tomb. How that tomb got emptied is for the next fact. But the next, yes. the, the, but, the, but before we get there, the first thing we need to assert is there was an empty tomb. <laughs> and that seems like a little bit of a different thing to assert rather than just going straight to the resurrection. But why does it make a difference that we start there? That's, that is key because that is not disputed even by the Jews at the time. And so that's significant because what it says is, is that the tomb was empty. We get a, a record that the guards were uh, killed for allowing, quote, someone to steal the body. In other words, from their perspective, well, that's the only option they could think of. How could that have happened? But you're right. The key is there's absolutely no disagreement that the tomb was empty. And that's important because you really can't come up with any kind of a theory. You have to now put into the possibility that the body was stolen or the possibility that he really was raised from the dead becomes a real historical possibility. Now, you may say that's less likely than something else, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but you can't. Uh, you can't say he didn't die. You know he was placed in the tomb, and you know the tomb was empty. Now the burden comes to explain what could have caused that to happen. And I think that's very important, Cole, and we should not skip over that on the way to talking about the resurrection, because you have to explain the empty tomb somehow. Right. And you explain that perfectly because there's an objection that says that, and this this is even harder to believe as an objection than the swoon theory, that at some point maybe the tombs got mixed up or he was put somewhere that the disciples thought he was somewhere else or some 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 swap happened that that is not even what the the opponents were reporting the right. the roman authorities and the jews were saying that the tomb was empty they just had other explanations besides the fact that he had risen from the dead so we need to yes. assert the tomb is empty just because that's what everyone was dealing with. Now we begin to move on to how did the tomb come to be empty on that Easter morning? And the next thing to assert, and th this is really an interesting point, is the disciples believed that he had risen from the dead. This kind of sounds like a no-duh statement, but it's right. really powerful for uh, proving a historical fact like this. The disciples believed and went to their deaths saying that he had risen from the dead. And you know, that's interesting too, because the Jews started a rumor, because they have to do something, that the disciples stole the body and are now telling you that he raised from the dead. Of course, the Romans kill the guards because it's like, well, obviously somebody had to have stolen him, and you guys must have either been complicit or you were bribed or whatever. So, but the point, a specific point I want to make is this. The people of that time are just like us. What would be your first natural human reaction? Well, somebody stole the body because, let's face it, people don't rise from the dead every day. But that was not the disciples' first reaction. And they were normal people, too. But they believed that he had risen from the dead because he told them he would ahead of time. And so I just think that's a very good point that gets overlooked. 
the natural reaction was, well, I don't know how, but somebody stole the body, probably the disciples, and they're lying about it. But the disciples did it, and they go all the way to their death, uh, maintaining that we actually saw the empty tomb, and more than that, which I know you'll get to in a minute, we saw him when he was alive. You know, Chuck Colson, you may remember him, he went to to jail during Watergate back in the Nixon years, for, uh, for and deservedly so. And he then became a Christian uh, when he got out of prison. And, he, and, of course, he had an unbelievable decades of prison ministry. And this is really an interesting quote about the idea that the disciples probably stole the body. And then this is a big hoax. You know, they, they're going to start it. And he said this. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact. And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Now, Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Mm-hmm. I love that quote. That's a that's a great perspective on that. How could you think that this group of people under torture and interrogation at their deaths, and then in the intervening time going to the ends of the earth with this message, could have just made this up? Somebody would have cracked at some point, and we don't have any record of any of the apostles recanting, cracking, denying, uh, giving any kind of explanation other than they believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. But let me play the devil's advocate. Let me say that, okay, obviously they didn't steal the body. We can't explain the empty tomb by saying the disciples came, stole it, and then told a big lie, uh, you know, for their whatever benefit for them. That That isn't going to fly. But Cole, what about the argument that someone else stole the body and the disciples came, oh my goodness, empty tomb. We didn't steal the body. He must have raised from the dead. What do you do with that? Well, that's another argument that people make. You have a disappearing body because obviously you never have the body show up. That would be a, that would be something where it's like, oh, somebody else took it and we found it. That would be kind of a, a, a way to disprove what they were saying. But the major argument against that is kind of the next thing which we need to assert, which is he appeared. He appeared right. to many, many people. And Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 15, which if you're thinking of the Gospels, again, the, these are not live accounts of Jesus' life. This, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not writing for the Jerusalem Post as things are happening and publishing, this was not live. Never Yeah, not so live the, at the time the the gospels are written anywhere twenty five to fifty years after Jesus dies, depending on when you date these gospels. Paul's letters are written within a dozen years of right. Jesus dying at the beginning, at least. And so, First uh, Corinthians, we think, is probably written somewhere in the neighborhood of fifteen years after Jesus uh, died and rose from the dead. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. I delivered it to you as of first importance what I also received. This is an argument I first heard Gary Habermas make. 
So if you start from whenever you think First Corinthians is written, probably in the late 50s or early 60s, and mm-hmm. you back up to when Paul first became a Christian and he went to Jerusalem and talked with the apostles. And then when he came back and, and said, this is the gospel I'm preaching, and they said, that's exactly right. That gets you all the way back into the 30s, depending on when you think G, depending on when you think Paul was converted, which is probably mm-hmm. within a pretty short time of Jesus' resurrection. Right. He checks with these people and he receives a gospel and he's confirmed in the gospel by other people who had already been preaching it. So that gets you within a very close time period of Jesus dying and rising. Then the other facet of what he says here that's interesting is, he says, I received this gospel that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, to Peter, and then to the twelve, that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul's argument here is, I received this gospel from the very moment that it took place. And it's not just me. Other people saw it. And if you doubt it, just go ask them. Because a lot of these people, he says, are still alive. So they saw him. Just go ask them. So this is another proof that you have against something like the body was stolen. You have all these people who are willing to verify. No, I I saw him. I saw the resurrected Christ. I saw him risen from the dead. And that isn't just his disciples. That isn't just his inner circle. That's hundreds of people that Paul says, just go check with them. And they'll tell you they saw him. So that's a big problem if you think somebody stole the body, whether it's the disciples or uh, somebody else. Who's this guy that's claiming to be Jesus that's now saying he's been risen from the dead? whom they all recognized as Jesus. I mean, they've spent several years with him. That's exactly right. And you know, one other little point there is that Jesus' appearances to those uh, 500 believers in Galilee, a number of people in Jerusalem, these things happened where it would be easy to disprove it. It's not like they said, okay, we're not going to preach this gospel in Jerusalem, and we're not going to preach it in Israel because it'd be too easy to check. We're going to go right. off to, you know, Iran and preach this gospel where nobody can double check. They're preaching this in Jerusalem. They're preaching this in Galilee and say, well, you, some of these people still live around here. Go check if you want. Mm-hmm. In other words, why would you do that if uh, you didn't think you would get corroboration? And and it just makes it so easy to disprove it if it could be disproved. Right. Right. So the the insistence that Jesus died, he really was dead, the tomb was empty, the disciples believed that he'd risen from the dead, he appeared before people that someone like Paul could say, just, just go check with people, they'll tell you what happened. And then lastly, and I think this is one that sometimes gets forgotten, but it's such a powerful evidence of the resurrection, the conversion of his brothers and of the Apostle yeah. Paul speaks to the reality of the resurrection of Christ. That is a very good point, because obviously his brothers knew him very well, having grown up with him. Paul did not know him very well at all. And the interesting thing is that for Paul to believe, 
He had to see a risen Christ because he had all the other arguments and excuses in his mind. It took seeing Jesus going, oh, my goodness, you are alive. And you know what? Paradoxically, it would have taken the same thing for his brothers. Mm -hmm. And they saw him and go, you really are the Christ. And so the people that knew him best and the people that knew him least, it seems to me, and maybe I'm off track on this call, but it seems to me that that's the most dramatic evidence of uh, Jesus' appearance, because those two people, ones that his brothers and the people like Paul that didn't know him, didn't believe in him, were dedicated not to believing in him, those two would be the hardest to convince. Mm -hmm. Well, because you get evidence in the Gospels that his brothers and his family were not convinced by his teaching. So mm -hmm. we don't know exactly when the switch flipped for them, but we do know James and Jude, who have New Testament letters, are his brothers. They're his half-brothers, but, you know, they're his brothers. Yeah. And something changed between the middle of Jesus' ministry, when you see in the Gospels, his his mother and brothers come and they say, you know, why are you teaching these things? And Jesus says, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Uh, or, you know, people are trying to convince them that he's crazy and his right. his family is not helping the cause. Right. Well, all of a sudden now you have James, his brother, and Jude, his brother, who are pillars of the New Testament church, who are leaders, who are writing, who are pastoring. And the dramatic change that happened for them, they attribute to the resurrection. And right. you have to wonder, how else would that happen? I mean, what would your brother have to do to convince you that he's the Messiah? Rising from the dead would be a pretty good, uh, uh, that would be a pretty good way to convince me. And Paul is, is another story entirely. He's persecuting the church. Jesus appears to him, knocks him off his horse, puts him on the ground, changes his life. He becomes the most adamant and uh, gives his life to following and preaching the message of Christ, that doesn't happen for uh, individual delusion or uh, a made-up vision. It just doesn't. It, it, it There's too much interpersonal evidence of life change and experience to say that, well, Paul just happened to be mistaken. Oh, well, what about James and Jude? What about Peter? What about the other apostles? What about those church fathers that we just talked about that walked with the apostles. But what about the 500 right. who had seen Jesus risen from the dead? It just, there's never been anything even close to this for people believing or or coming up with a lie and carrying it out. Yeah. The two other things that are big to me on that topic, one is small, one is big. The smaller one is this, the Roman historians know and refer to the fact that this Christ was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He was killed. I mean, they know he was dead and he was killed. And these Christians worship him because they say he is alive. Now, to the Roman historian who's never set foot in, in Israel, it's like, okay, well, that's crazy, but I just let you know, this is why they worship this guy. They think he's alive. So mm -hmm. it was really clear and widely known that they believed that he was alive. The big evidence to me is the Jews at the time who most desperately wanted to disprove Christianity floated the rumor that the disciples stole the body. And we've already talked about how that just makes no sense, but I understand why they tried to start that rumor. 
There is no evidence of which I'm aware that they even attempted to refute the resurrection. If they could have gotten some of those witnesses and said, you know what? These guys say you saw this. Did you see it? No, I I didn't see it. I, I don't know what they're talking about. They would have paraded those people out front and center because they were very worried that that superstition would catch on. And so the the silence of the Jewish leaders at the time speaks volumes to me that if the resurrection could have been refuted if it weren't true, because the the eyewitnesses were there and yet uh, they could find no one to refute that. I just think Mm -hmm. that is an overlooked evidence. And to me, it's very compelling because they had all the uh, impetus in the world to disprove this. Yeah, I agree. That's a that's a very strong point. And you come to the end of this and and you think, OK, uh, I think we have as much evidence as any historical event that we haven't experienced to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And I want to make a point here. Sometimes we get, I think, a little bit mixed up by saying, do we have faith that Jesus died and rose from the dead? It, that's not completely wrong, because like we said earlier, if you want to get really in the weeds about this, we have some level, some degree of faith in everything that we believe that we've been told. But that's not right. usually what we mean by faith. We we don't necessarily have faith that Jesus died and rose. We we believe that he died and rose like we believe any other historical fact. Right. We think those are settled. Faith comes in when we talk about, but what does that mean? So yes, what he rose exactly. from the dead. We have faith that his death actually does something for us, that his death, his his blood shed for us really will forgive our sins, that his resurrection from the dead means that if we are in him, we too will rise from the dead, that God vindicated Christ by raising him, showing that he was his true son, and he is an heir of all things. And because of that, if we're in him, those things will happen to us as well. Those are the things we have faith in, that his blood is applied to us, that our sins are forgiven in him, that we will rise from the dead with him, that we will be reunited to God, that we have the Holy Spirit now testifying to those things in us. That's where we have faith. It's it's not necessarily in the historical event. We believe the historical event, but don't sell it short. Yes. We have evidence to believe the historical event. Uh, and we have faith to believe that that historical event is the most significant thing, not just in history, but in our personal lives today. That somehow we are united with that. That's what separates it from every other historical event. You're exactly right. I think that's a key point is the resurrection is as reasonable and as factual as any other historical thing that you believe to be true. Where faith comes in is trusting that as God raised him from the dead, God will also raise us from the dead through the power of Jesus' blood and his resurrection. And and I think you're wise to say some of this is faith, but the historical event upon which that faith is based is not a leap of faith. It is an established fact. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.